See Sweet and Sour, powered by Align, the podcast where we talk about the sweet and not-so-sweet sides of leadership. Hello, everybody uh, listening uh, to this episode of See Sweet and Sour. I am very, very happy to host the, the wonderful Ann Bao. How are you today? I'm great, Philip. It's Friday, so I'm, I'm pretty yes. happy. <laughs> We're recording this on Friday. How crazy are we at the end of the day? Oh, well, at least it is for me. Uh, you are in the in the in the in the West Coast, correct? So you got a little, couple more hours to go. Couple more, close there. Uh, all right. To just kick us off, I'm gonna go through your bio, and then we'll start asking questions and get this going. Here we go. Ambao brings 20 years of leadership experience in technology and healthcare industries in the U.S. and internationally. She has built out cross-functional operations and analytics functions in a range of public and high-growth private sector organizations with revenues ranging from $20 million to $5 billion. Unicorn status. Anne's performance-driven leadership style is only matched with her passion for cultivating diverse human-first teams where people can show up with, as their authentic selves and achieve more together. I love that. Her top three values are fairness, inclusion, and authenticity. And is currently the VP of Revenue Operations and Enablement at Maven Clinic, a telemedicine-based virtual clinic for women's and women's and family health when she's not at work, which seems like you're always at work based on that bio, um, <laughs> and can be found teaching yoga or hiking, uh, hiking the hills of uh, Marin, California. Did I say it right? Marin. Marin. Marin, sorry. We're, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna edit that out, and we're just gonna keep the blooper in there, and that's it. Uh, Ma- uh, California with her husband, two kids, and two dogs. And whenever somebody talks about dogs in their bio, I have to ask, what are their names, and what types of dogs? Yeah, um, I have Navi, N A V I, which is short for Navigator. He okay. is a purebred Wheaton Terrier. He actually okay. comes from the history of Grand Champions. Oh, very nice. I'm not in my dog breeding business. I just like dogs. And then I have Rocky, who is a rescue. And we think he's a blend of Scottish Terrier and Schnauzer. Very, very cool. So I know my producer, uh, Haley, who is very much a dog person, is going to love all that. And I am very much a dog person at one time. uh, um, I think every time we're going to talk about dogs, I'm going to say the exact same thing. I'm sorry, listeners. You're just going to have to hear it. Um, I used to have at, at one time 10 dogs and then a litter of eight. So 18 dogs at one time, plus a couple of cats. Yes, we had a lot of animals in our house. Uh, this is when I was living with my parents when I was a, a wee, wee child. And amazing career. And we're here to talk about leadership. And based off your bio, you've gone through a lot, which is impressive, say the least. I would like to talk about a strong culture and what that actually means to you. Sure. And thanks, Philip. Thanks so much for having me today. Um, Leadership is one of my favorite topics to both talk about and to continually learn about because it's it's a never ending journey, right? Yes, Um, it is. Yeah. So the strongest teams, and I'm going to think about it as really what defines a strong team to me. What do I look for? And what I found, and I think I've been very lucky to both be a part of strong teams as a member and also to build strong teams and the best teams I've worked with have the, all the same things in common, which really guide a lot of the values that I really try to bring my team um, to embody. Number one, high degree of accountability, high degree of ownership. None of that. Oh, it's not my problem, right? This is deeply related to teams as, as a set of values, having a deep sense of curiosity 
anyone who knows me, I ask a lot of questions. That's how I learn. That's how I think that most of us learn. And I really want my teams, particularly in operations and analytics teams, which are teams that I've built. I, I look for people who are deeply, innately curious, right? Who want to understand, who want to get to the root of what's happening. That's another um, aspect I think that is, is a real attribute of consistently of high-performing strong teams. I also think a degree of empathy. And when I talk about empathy, I we'd say, you know, take off your, your expert hat. So get in the minds of your user. You know, if um, my team are often the experts of data, of operations, of reporting, but working with a variety of myriad different stakeholders. And so I'm like, they are not the experts. How would they be thinking about this? How would they be receiving that? Also really critical. I also think that you have that probably one of the most important things that I deeply believe in is one team. Team cohesion is really important as me as a leader to make sure it's happening. And I, I've said to people, the thing that I will not permit in a team is me over the team or me one person over team. You put the team first, you know, whether that is somebody's really drowning, how can I help that team member? I would never want to have one person working 70 hour weeks and another person working 20 hour weeks. Like, I mean, who works 20 hour weeks really in high growth startups, but you really need yeah. to be thinking, how can I make the team successful? So, I mean, I think those those are some of the most important capabilities. I also think, you know, people want a level of autonomy mm-hmm. and people really want to be able to figure out, okay, and tell me what the result is that you're looking for, but let me have the space to figure out the how. I think that's really important as well. And in order to do that, you have to have all those things. You have to be curious. You have to have a level of ownership. You have to be willing to say, okay, I know my part, what comes before and after my part. So you can really stitch that together, particularly when you're in team operations. So I think these all are really intertwined. And the last thing I'll add is actually, I believe that you need to give people the space to come up with what they think high performance looks like. So I usually have a set core number of values. I just named many of them. And then when I invite my team um, to learn about that and the mission of the team, and I share these, I actually say, what is one value that's not on this list that I that you guys are going to tell me needs to be on the list? And they come up with the value. So actually at Maven Clinic, one of ours is learn and teach. I have a group of individuals that really want to learn from each other that recognize themselves also as experts, and they also want to teach their peers. And I think that's important that you give them the space to say what high performance looks like. I like that addition very, very much. It brings somebody in with fresh eyes that might have different perspective on things to kind of, well, it does two things. One, it brings in this other perspective and two, actually brings them into the, into the fold, right? Because that means now they are part of this uh, value or culture with their, with their value and it kind of meshes together. That's, I, I like that very, very much. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's the first thing you said, accountability, which I'm, you can't have a business or you can't have a successful business without goals and accountability. My question is, how do you keep somebody accountable? I'm not asking in general. I'm asking you specifically, and how do you keep people? Uh, what's your style of, of keeping accountability? Right. So one, transparency. I'm pretty clear with these are my expectations. This is what I expect. This is what I expect you as an individual. This is what I expect you as a leader. I'm a big fan of setting goals and bringing transparency around those goals and talking about those goals, as well as stitching together what you know, in my case, my departmental goals are, what their goals are, how they contribute, and regularly tracking those and having people stand up and talk about their own progress. I found that when you give people the floor to really own their goals, they're more likely to achieve against them versus having somebody else speak on their behalf, right? So I think that transparency and that opportunity to provide like real ownership is critical. You have to be able to trust your team. Like this is your goal, 
right? How else do I do it? I mean, what I've also found is it's not just me. It's how are they going to hold each other accountable? And what I find is it's it's like you see this even like sales organizations, you know, like a little bit of FOMO. Why do you have leaderboards and whatnot? People want to be keeping up with their peers, right? So if they see all of their peers stepping up and standing up, they're going to feel more likelihood to, I think, demonstrate that same level of behavior. So yes, I I also think you should know, I, I don't consider myself a top-down leader. Yes, I can be a directive leader. I mean, I'm a yellow-red. We can talk about that in a little bit. But my style is not command and control. My style is empowerment and enablement. My style is grassroots and bottoms up. I really want to hear what people think. I really want to capture you know, what their inputs are. And the other way that I hold them accountable is I have to hold myself accountable and demonstrate that to them. So when I make a mistake, I have to be willing to one, transparently admit that and probably be the first person to do that in the team. I believe that you know, the fish rots from the head, innovation theory, fish rots from the head. So if you are a leader and you are not accountable for your mistakes, how can you expect others to be accountable for theirs? So when I make a mistake, you name it, you own it, you ask for forgiveness, you move on. But you got to you gotta own it. And I think if you demonstrate that behavior, then when you hold them accountable, you're not doing something that you yourself wouldn't. Yeah. Leading by example, if I could summarize that, is just is so, so crucial, especially today. You know, it's only especially today. It's always been like that, I believe. It just hasn't been something that people put any value towards. It was just, you know, I get paid more. I'm your boss. Do what I say because that's just the way it is. And today it just makes more sense and just lead by example and get people. It's not that I think it always makes sense, but today it's, it's just, I guess, more accepting or more people expect that more. I think that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to get to. No, I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, I think it speaks to where you're at generationally. Right. So I don't mind saying I'm 42. I think that makes me a Gen X. I'm like right on the cusp, but I'm not a millennial, but I manage a lot of millennials. And then there's all the new ones. I don't remember it. But, you know, I I, it's my duty to pay attention as a leader and to adapt my style of leadership to the types of people that I'm managing and to really understand generationally based on generational as well as individually what they need to be successful. And what I find is the old way of the highway. It didn't work for me. It definitely wouldn't work for my team. Like what I say goes you will do X, Y, Z. I don't want somebody to do it because I told them to do it. I want them to do it because they understand why. And I want them to do it because they believe and they trust and are intrinsically motivated to do that. And when you can tap into the intrinsic motivation of someone on your team, that is when you get the flywheel effect. The command and control eventually dies out. I don't even know if it ever is that successful. I I don't think leading through fear is ever the way to lead. A lot of leaders do it. I'm not one of those leaders. <laughs> I think it depends on the people you're leading. Or in the case of when it's command and control, it's not really leading. It's telling them what to do. I don't, I don't consider that leading. I consider that, like I said before, I, I call it being a boss rather than being a leader. Again, and I think you touched on that, on that point where it's a generational thing. I don't want to talk about my parents or 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 their or my grandparents, but back then it was acceptable to have somebody tell you what to do, and you just that's, I got to do it right today. It's just not, they want, everybody wants to know why I, I want to know why I'm doing this for the good or the bad. And we can get into that conversation later. Them asking why sometimes can drive a leader crazy because let's just do this first. And then we can talk about why. I've been one of those people who's driven that leader crazy. Yeah, yes. <laughs> one of my leaders, my former leaders. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And, and, you know, I, I could see where that comes from, especially when you're a smaller team. If you're a bigger team, it's different. But when it's a smaller team, it's it's it just you need things to be done. And then once it, the, the dust settles, then I will be the first person to explain to you, hey, listen, this is why we did it. So it, it, it's a generation thing. And it's not again, like I said, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just needs to be put into perspective. And again, going back to transparency, we have to explain why we have to do it this way right now, kind of to expectations. So the expectations are there. I kind of want to touch on what you mentioned about red and yellow. So <laughs> yes. What am this I talking isn't... about there? <laughs> yes, because I'm sure that a lot of people, and I didn't, before our, our pre-interview, uh, if you can call it that, pre-conversation, you touched on that a bit and you showed me this whole flywheel and it looked, it looked very, very rainbow-esque, but I would love it if you could, in words, because not everybody's going to be seeing this, Explain explain what the colors mean and 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 where it came from and and anything else you can give sure. any color. Yeah, so um, I think we're talking about something I do with every team that I've run, and I don't even know, probably the last seven years. I've been running teams for about seven to eight years, seven to nine years. So I do something called a team credo. There's different parts to the credo. What is the credo? One, and I do this for when you form the team, when you bring somebody new onto the team, they want to understand what team am I joining? I also actually share this with people in my interview process to really assess like fit or add, culture add rather as well. Like, is this something they want to be a part of? The credo is a few things. Number one, what is the mission of the team? What are we here to do in terms of our jobs? What are we here to impact? And it should be pretty aspirational, right? Number two, what are the values of that I want our team to live by? And again, one of those teams is shaped with input by the team. And I usually invite in discussion, which one of these resonate, which one have you seen other people really embodying, et cetera. The third part of this is, and I say, okay, great. We know who we are. We talk about our responsibilities, what, what we need to do in terms of our actions. But then really the majority of the credo is around how we act. And I have like a little visual that's showing everybody in like a torrential downstorm and like a sailboat, and, you know, a sailboat, a sailing team. It takes a lot of people operating together as a team to get that thing to go. Right. And so yes, that's the whole idea. And you have to have a really team oriented attitude for that for that boat to move. And so I say, you know, our success is going to come down to how we operate as a collective unit. And so but really a team is just made up of people. And so. I ask everyone to do what I call a quad. The quad, I, that's what I've labeled it. I can tell you some of the genesis of it, but I, I've made it into my own. It's kind of four sections. That's on an axis. I'm a math person. So on the top left section, there's your strengths. On the top right section, it's your um, motivators. On the top bottom section, it's your triggers. And then the top, uh, the bottom right section, it's your communication style preferences. Now, uh, and then across the board, it's like, who are you as a person? So typically I give people an exercise. I'm like, you know, there's a lot of different personality tests out there. The ones that I do that I've really identified with one, I had a whole course on an MBA, <laughs> 10 weeks learning about yourself. It's really great, but it's a lot. Um, so it's discovery <laughs> insights. It was developed by Carl Jung, the big psychologist. And it's basically you're a red, you're a yellow, you're a green. There's different aspects of there's disc. And based, based on your color, we all have these different colors, but some of them are more pronounced, right? And so I am a red, which is typically like a director, somebody who takes a lot of command, and a yellow. And I'm actually very equal parts yellow-red as my dominant colors. I'm actually primary yellow followed very close by red. Yellow mm -hmm. is like getting groups together, starting things, organizing communities. And then I'm equal parts blue and green. Blue is like much more analytical, cool blue. Green is all about like harmony. I'm generalizing here, but you get the gist. And so I ask everybody to take a test 
discovery insights. Maybe they do a Myers-Briggs, they do an Enneagram. In this process, they learn about themselves. Then I say, tell me and tell your the team, introduce yourself through this guise of the quad. What did you learn about yourself? What do we need to know about you as a red, yellow, green, Enneagram 8, 2, helper, challenger? And then talk to us about your strengths. And some people, it's interesting when I introduce you, like, how do I know what my strengths are, Anne? Fascinating, right? I'm like, well, I did a strengths finder. I did another test to find out. Apparently, your strengths finder, it's the same strengths all throughout your life. These aren't like, these aren't Facebook quizzes, are they? They're not Facebook quizzes. <laughs> but, you know, if I also say, listen, if you don't want to take a quiz, go and ask people who know you really well, who will be honest with you and have them tell you your strengths. And so I want them to go through a period of introspection. And then I can say, like, when you think about the moments in your life or the environments that have really motivated you, what did that look like? It could be like, I need a high degree of autonomy. I need to hit back. One person who is a seller is like, money, Anne. Money motivates me. I'm like, you know what? Great. You're in the right field. Awesome. Right. And yeah. And then triggers, and this is really important. So for me, what are my triggers? Ego, bullying behavior, I think, like command and control, like high aggression, deep triggers, right? Unfairness, lack of transparency. I need to know this about my team. I need to definitely know this about my direct reports. And it's going to guide how I engage with them as their leader. But I also want my team to know because how they interact is equally important. And then, of course, communication style. You're a person who's a slacker. I slack all the time. Are you a person who needs to read things in email? Are you a person who wants to get together face-to-face? -to -face? Of course, you, you want to use these as a guide because then the fun fact is you have to mix all these together and figure out how to be in harmony with all these different types of people. But why I do this exercise is, one, I find beyond it helping everybody learn about each other, they actually learn a lot about themselves. And the cool part is everybody introduces who they are to the team. And then what I do as a leader, I get in advance. I actually map where people are similar and where we have diversity, maybe where there's gaps. And what I think it allows them to see is that, wow, collectively as a team, we have a lot more to bring to the table in terms of problems that we have to solve. And the main reason I do this is I find it breeds trust very quickly, very quickly within the team, which is the core part of any team. If you don't yeah. trust the people in your team, why are you going to work hard to do great yeah. work? Wow. Maybe not now because we don't have too much time, but if you ever do have some more time to, to talk about this, maybe a little bit more, or maybe kind of do, I saw you had like a, a PDF of that. I would love to to give you all the credit and just sh share that wealth of knowledge with future leaders or current leaders that need some help. That That is amazing. Can I share one thing actually? Cause you asked like, yeah, it's important the Genesis and how you use this. And I'm yes. going to say I learned this through a, I like to say like a step in poo moment of my own leadership journey. Which you you was, can say shit. We're just going to have to beep it out. That's all. But go okay. ahead. Okay. I'm, I'm a mother of two toddlers. So, you know, so this was probably, <laughs> yes, you do. Um, you have a third one on the way. This yeah. was about gosh, 10 years ago. And it was maybe the second or third, third team that I built. And so I'd kind of been around, but I was still kind of finding my, my own style of leadership. And one of the women on my team, we were just butting heads, right? And we didn't know it. I was like, wow, we're really butting heads. Like, gosh, she drives me crazy. Like, why can't we get together and solve this? And she was probably like, God, Anne drives me crazy. Why does she want to talk all the time? And so we we're butting heads, butting heads, butting heads. And then finally, our HR director, one of the best HR directors I'd worked with up to that point in my career was like, I have this idea of why you guys are really battling right now. And I'm like, really? Because I went to her, I'm like, hey, I need some help. And she's like, I think you guys are very different people. I'm like, okay, really? Probably, maybe. 
And so she's like, I want you to take this test. And at that point, we just took the strengths finder. I didn't have all those. When I started with strength finder, I adapted to the quad. So I took a strength finder. This woman took a strength finder. We did the independently, we shared, and we were the complete opposite in how we problem solved. So for example, me, problem comes in. I'm like, let's get in a room. Let's brainstorm. Doesn't have to be perfect. For her, she was like a blue. She's analytical. In her words, she wanted to like go into a cave, look at the problem, not talk to anybody, think about it and come back. Our approach to problem solving could not have been more oppositional. And so when we shared this and then this HR director facilitated it, we both like laughed out loud. We're like, wow. And so we ended up being able to really make space for who we are as individuals and how we were just, neither of us was right or wrong. We were just running up against the differences and how we showed up at work. And what was great is after that moment, we would get a new problem. She's like, okay, I'm going to go into my cave. I know you want to jump in and do this. I'll come back to you. I'm like, cool. And then if we were ever like, you know, having a tough moment, we would be like, is this just one of our triggers going off again? We could talk about it. And yeah. it really just helped us get to the next point in our career. And we didn't have issues anymore. So that was really a critical moment in my own journey of like, wow, I need to expose that understanding earlier in the process so that I can, ho- I mean, you're going to have storms. I actually, that's the other part of the the, the credo. I deeply mm-hmm. believe in um Tucker's philosophy of form, storm, norm, perform, you know, everyone wants to get to perform. You don't get to perform without going through the stages. So you're going to form. If anyone's not familiar, you're going to form. Everyone's like, wow, this is great. You're so great. I'm great. We should hang out. We're best friends. It's like the first time you go to college and you have like 90,000 best friends. And then you yeah. don't like a month later. And you don't because you right. realize everybody's a, yeah, go ahead. Yep. And then, <laughs> and then you're like, okay, great. You form. And then suddenly you're like, wait, you're not great. You kind of bothered me in that meeting. And then suddenly you have your first storm. People try and cut through the storm. Be positive. Don't be negative. I'm like, no, no, no. And I've told my team, like, we're going to storm and you got to get through the storm. You got to accept we're going to get through the storm. You're going to accept that I'm probably going to say something that's pissing you off. You're going to base something that's pissed me off. And we got to like work through it. And then we're going to work through it. And we're going to get to the norm. And then we're going to accelerate to perform. And just putting that out there and talking about it and being like, this is going to happen and it's okay. I've had people on my teams and even the other leaders say, and are we in a storm right now? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, but we're going to get through it, right? I'm like, yes, we will. And then we just move much more quickly. I'm imagining the scenario in my head right now. In my body, I'm feeling the alleviation of once there's the realization of, listen, we're in a situation that was supposed to happen because it needs to happen. It's happening right now. And I can just see the, like, I'm closing my eyes right now. I could just see the whole team kind of realizing, oh, we are in this stage and we're going to go just that realization alleviates so much stress when it's something that is, was, is expected, even though at the moment you're not expecting it, but you realize that you're supposed to accept it. I'm I like goosebumps right now. I can't really tell. Yeah. But. I mean, you think about it, it's like just, you're just trusting. You're like, yeah. I'm going to trust this. I'm going to trust that we're going to get through. And I think it comes back to, you know, when I think about, again, I've been a part, I've been a member of great teams as well. There was such a deep trust. And I think when you peel that back, what's underneath that trust? Safety. Deep psychological safety. So if you're like, what do I look for if I'm going to join a team? Can I trust this person? Do I feel safe with this person? Are they going to be straight with me? So key, right? Yeah. 
Wow. Okay. Let me take a breather there uh, and take a deep breath. And now with next question. Uh, no, that was good. That was amazing. I, I just, whenever I hear something like that's, that's that profound and I realize the profoundness of it, it gives me a second to come back to reality. But we're back now. And the next question, let's start off with a, a brand new startup. Let's say no real revenue in ca cash, mm -hmm. not a lot of cash, but we have to hire. What are you looking for in, in, this, in this candidate? And then I'll jump to the other scenario. Oh, gosh. So we need to dig in a little bit more there. Okay. That's big. <laughs> okay. Ask, ask questions because it's a completely hypothetical and I'm, I, and just asking whatever pops well, in my I'm mind. Going, okay. What team are you trying to hire in for? Who are um, we? What let's, do, let's do, let's do rev, rev ops because you know, you're, you're the expert in that. So let's just say rev ops. Okay. So you're rev ops. Yeah. I don't know if you'd be hiring rev ops before you had revenue. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just say there's a little bit of revenue. Let's All say right, we're, we're at five million. Five okay. million error. Okay. Maybe your Series A, Series B. Correct. Can I say like typically where I see like RevOps coming in is you've reached, you've been able to demonstrate that you have a market need. You've Correct. been able to demonstrate that you have fit product market fit with that need. You have been able to generate sales motions and get people to pay you. Yes. <laughs> in a more consistent manner. And now you're like, okay, great. Now I need to, and then things are starting to move in so fast. You're starting to really have growth pick up. Yes. And suddenly all of the scrappiness and the get her done attitude, which has been great, which has gotten you to that point, things are starting to break all across. The yes. Board. So yes. why I say that is if that hasn't happened yet, I mean, yeah, you can bring in a rev ops, but like, what are we going to do? You don't have any revenues. <laughs> there, there's like, there is 100%. like a little what I look for, and I don't even want to say revenue operations. So I've run revenue operations team. I've run BI teams. I've run sales operations teams. I've run data analytics teams, CRM teams, et cetera, right? I generally, if you are look for the same thing in any of those roles, um, because again, like I just am a believer that if you get somebody who is smart, and I don't mean like you have to have gone to Yale or Harvard or whatnot, or even you have to have gone to college, honestly. No. Don't I, get like, me started. Don't get me I'm started. Yeah. I mean, great. But I've also hired some of those people and they've not been that great. Or I've beaten those people up for jobs. Sorry. But coming on, moving on. What sorry, gonna, not sorry. Yes. <laughs> what I'm going to say is I am going to first deeply look for, do they have drive? Do they have deep intrinsic motivation, particularly what you're talking about, where it's like, we haven't gotten this figured out yet. We're like in our infancy stage, right? I'm not, I'm not hiring for people who are at, you know, 75,000 person companies that have 15 people to do one person's job. I'm, no, we're hiring people that have to be really T-shaped, meaning they can flex to lots of different situations that probably being bring a deep expertise in one core area, very resonant to their job but are really adaptable. And in order to be really adaptable, they generally have to have something driving them. And again, coming back to, it's not gonna be me, because <laughs> I'm not gonna be sitting there telling them what they have to do because that gets old to me and for them. I am gonna look for somebody who is highly motivated and self-directed. That is what I look for. And, and you know, they don't have to have been self-directed in work. So I, um, I've hired people before. I generally look for like, who are the people that are out there doing a number of things? in their personal and their professional life. Those are the people who get a lot of things done, right? Those are the people who have diverse interests. Those are the people who have self-directed and propelled themselves, 
right? And those are the people who are going to find a way. So that's what I look for. And I've seen that, I mean, in sales, the hunter mentality, who's going to hunt? It's the same thing. Who's got drive, right? You're looking for high performers. That is one of the first things I look for. And I mean, I think it's deeply related to passion. You know, you can be deeply passionate about coding. You could be deeply passionate about innovation. You could be deeply passionate about data modeling. You could be deeply passionate about relationships. I am looking for that, right? So I, I always, whenever I ask about hiring, I always ask about hobbies. And it kind of touches back to what you just said right now. I don't necessarily care which hobbies, even though I personally, because I'm more into sports, uh, I just resonate more with somebody who does. Although if somebody says to me their hobby is piano or 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 like rock collecting, I'm not going to, um, that, that's I'll actually like that because of the fact that we need, you know, you need diversity, right? That's not a bad thing necessarily. Right. But I do think it's incredibly important to have a hobby. If you tell me right now, I just watch Netflix all day. That's not a hobby. That is wasting your time. I'm <laughs> I sorry. Netflix. <laughs> I do as well, but I also do inline hockey. I do jujitsu and, you know, God knows what I do with my kids. But the idea is if they tell me just that or, or they don't have an answer for me, personally, that drives me crazy. And I think a lot of leaders out there are going to look at, at those type of people, types of people. And even though they might have a really, really... Mm -hmm. decent resume, somebody with a little bit less of a decent resume, but shows that drive, maybe a little yeah. bit junior. There's something there unless, you know, no, I was going to, I'm wrong. One thing I was going to say, I, I say drive or passion, but what am I also looking for? I want to hire people, particularly in roles that I am in where they're process planning, organization, project management, like you always have 25 billion things to do and not enough time. Always. That's true. You have to have a plan for how you're going to get it done. And one question I ask anyone who's watching this, they're like, note it down if they ever interview with me, is whether I'm interviewing for my team or I'm interviewing as like a panel and interviewer for another person's role is I say, okay, I have your resume in front of me. Don't tell me your course of your resume. I can read that. I really want to understand why you have made the decisions that you have made in your career. What drove that? I really want to, there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm not trying to like say, oh, they gave me this answer. I hate those interviews where they want a specific answer. They should hire themselves. No, tell me what guided your thinking. Tell me what guided your actions. And so for example, you might look at my resume and say, okay, wow, Anne, stitch this together for me. You worked in big technology and then you went into corporate finance and then you went into business analytics and then you went to Africa and then you moved back. And like, I don't understand this. So if you ask me, I'd be like, here's what you need to know. I have worked in the US. I have worked abroad. I have worked in public sector. I have worked in private sector. I have worked with $20 million companies, $100 million, $5 million companies, all these different teams. But the, the stitch throughout this is I am a systems thinker. I am a person who really deeply under, likes to understand the various approaches to solving a problem and looks at them with multiple dimensions. I am a person where thread the data is the thread throughout my career. So yes, I've done all these different things, but all of them required a very data-minded orientation to getting things done. That is the thread. And then what's behind all of that I'm like, I'm like, I am a person who likes to get to the root of problems. So why did I move to Africa? 
I moved to Africa because I was working for the large world's largest HIV drug manufacturer, which was one part of the problem here. But I wanted to understand the full spectrum of the problem. So I went to the place in the world where HIV at the time had the highest prevalence in the entire globe. And I went there to work on that problem. And that tells you more than my resume will. And I want people to tell me their story. Yeah. I'm looking back when it comes to resumes. And I think most people do this. They just, the, the, the leaders, at least the leaders do it because they get so many, hopefully, is that they skim through it. And uh, what I like to do is in my requests or job, job descriptions, what I like doing is throwing in something there to show that they actually read through the whole thing. So at the bottom, I would write something like to see that you've read the whole thing, put number five, nine, six, seven, two, I don't know, just make up a number, whatever comes up. And I immediately, the, regardless of the, of, the res, of the quality of the resume, I immediately put them into my list of people that I'm going to talk to because it shows one aspect of literally going through them. And it means they care just a little bit more. You know, they might not be the right fit after having the conversation, but it shows a little something, right? That, that, that's something I, I appreciate a lot. And it shows, it shows that extra potential drive that, you know, we're talking about. How do you maintain a healthy relationship with individual employees? Now, I want to say something first before this. I, I forgot if, if it was today or yesterday because I'm writing so many LinkedIn posts right now to try to get brand awareness for a company. But one of the things was I like to, for my personal life, I like it to overflow a bit to my work life. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is I, I do not censor what's happening in my own world. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I do it is to show that it's okay to talk about real life and that the fact that there is, you know, business is not everything, right? When I talk to my, my team, it's, it's, remember, there's no, there's no, you're not, your button, your finger's not on the, on the nuclear codes. And if God forbid something happens, it's, it's okay. It can wait a day, you know, regardless of deadlines and whatever, it's not life or death. So we have to understand that. Right. And so that's what, I do. I try to bring in my personal life a little bit, try to bring in that, that, that connection a little bit more and to show them that I do care about them. What do you do? Yeah. What I'm hearing, it's interesting, is like, how do you create connection with your team? I think that is what creates that loyalty. Yeah. Right. 100%. Yeah. I love this question. Fun fact. Uh, so I got my master's in business at my MBA in Cape Town when I was living in Africa. And it's, it's a different type of um, MBA, much more like research focused, where it was 12 years ago whenever I did it. And my thesis topic was on connectedness. So it was connectedness and engagement in technology. So I don't know what the topic was. I should remember this, like connectedness to technology and empowering union for community engagement. There it is. And so I was deeply <laughs> fascinated about I connectedness. Why? I, I tend to be a very engaged person. AK, when I do something, I go all the way. I do it all the way. And I've had a lot of people ask me, how do you get this engaged? What's at the root of it? How do you get involved in all these different things? And through the research, I'm coming back to your question. No I found that the root of engagement. First, I wanted to write my thesis on engagement. And then all of the research articles, all the people that I interviewed, I was like, it's actually not about engagement. It's about connectedness. That is the root of engagement. You get people to engage with people that you connect with. But then I'm like, well, how do you create connectedness? You don't just like connect. So then I explored that. And through, I had like 60 focus groups, interviewed a bunch of connectors in both the US and Africa, read a lot of materials and the same kind of four to five themes kept coming up, kept coming up, kept coming up. I'll share them. Number one, disruption, provocation. People connect with people who say the hard thing. 
people connect with person who say the hard truth. Sometimes it's like, whoa, I can't believe they said that. That creates like a little bit of intrigue. That's number one. These actually aren't sequentially ordered. I'm just remembering that first. Sure. Two, specificity. Makes a lot of sense. And actually, I've analyzed this from like a digital campaign perspective. And literally, what do you engage with in digital campaigns? Like when I was in an agency, we did this. I'm like, oh, the data references what was in my thesis. Interesting. Specificity. You have to be specific enough so that people can discern whether or not they want to connect with you because people are getting stuff thrown at them all the time, which is a very important prelude to the third one, relevance. Just because you're specific about what you talk about or what you discuss or what you care about doesn't mean that it's relevant. So they're going to be, but they have first stuff to be like, is it specific enough? Do I know what they're talking about? Okay. Yes. Is this something I personally care about? Yes. Cool. Connection. The fourth openness. It actually came up as fluidity, no, no barriers, people who connect, or it's like inclusion, right? The more open you are, the more inclusive they are, the less silos, the less clicks, the more people will connect with you. The more people will want to connect with you. Makes sense. The fifth, authenticity, one of my core values, right? Authenticity. And I think it's like showing up as you are your full self. And so I'm not surprised to hear you say that. And I imagine it really resonated with your teams because again, how do I create that with my teams? I have built a lot of teams. I have had a 100% acceptance rate for every job I or someone on my team has ever offered. 100% acceptance. No one ever has ever turned it down. I keep in touch with people I have said no to still. And in addition, I think I have in terms of like a regrettable attrition rate, like less than 5% of all the people I'd ever been in. Why? I think it's because I try and I strive to be an approachable leader, a leader who shows up vulnerably, a leader who shows up saying, I don't have all the answers, or I messed up, or I'm having a hard day, or this is going on with me. I mean, many of my former direct reports are now friends. And I've had people say, I will follow you anywhere. And it's not because I think it's because there was a space where they could be who they wanted to be. And so I, I mean, personally, that's how I try to lead. That's how I aspire to lead. I don't always get it right, but I think that is the root of creating that level of connectedness with my team. That's great. And then, and, and the connectedness is what, what, what creates that loyalty. And, and it's a, it's a two way street, in my opinion, that loyalty. Uh, when it's there, it's there. I was lucky to pretty quickly go up the ranks in a, 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 a digital B2B startup uh, agency. And uh, I worked there for about three and a half years. I was a VP of marketing operations there. And I think just before I left, no, I don't think, I know, just before I left, we're, we were the peak. And at peak of the amount of people that were in the company, I think we hit like 25 at that time. And a bunch of freelancers, but we had we were at twenty five people, and just three years before that, it was just me and the owners. It was just me and the founders. I would joke about my life all the time, and they would talk to me about it, and they would have these conversation. It was fun time. It was fun to come to the office when that was a thing. When I left, everybody else left. Now I don't know if that was a coincidence necessarily. <laughs> like I don't I don't want to pat my back too much right now. Uh, they probably like the founders might be listening right now. They all they they actually they also left the company and was selling it about six months after I left as well, which is interesting. Well, people follow leaders and people leave leaders. Yeah, that's it. 
right? And so it's, you know, it's hard because I'm sure the company's like, how do we create that attachment here? We get those people to stay, right? It's like up the chain. I have had in the companies that I've left in the last five years, the whole team left after I left within a year. Now, I didn't want that. But yeah. like, how do you create that? And it wasn't like leave the company. I didn't influence them. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think you need to create those attachments and you need to consistently work at it, right? You can lead through fear until you can't lead through fear anymore. <laughs> right. My only worry about that is sometimes may is is there such thing as over over sharing over transparency? I personally, and I'll be the first person to say this. For me, there's no there's no like stop. I obviously don't talk about like gross things, or you know if if there's something growing on my toe or something, but <laughs> which there isn't. So that's that was not a hypothetical. Uh, I, I really it's I really have nothing growing on my toe, and I wouldn't talk about it either. I'm wondering what's Alan. what's the it's a good question. It's kind of like, you know, I, I have made that mistake before I have. Right. And usually it's, um, when that happens for me, it's usually a sign that I might not be in the right place. It's usually a sign that like, why are you doing this? Cause when you're in a healthy place, when you're in a place where it's, it's a positive culture, it's like a psychologically safe culture that you are not just creating that is around. I don't think you get to that space of oversharing. I don't. Right. Why should you have to? I mean, there are certain things you can't share that like literally like confidential and like, yeah. And those things you never do. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Usually when like that happens, maybe there's something going on and it's a sign of like, is this the right space for you? Yeah. I think there is an element of, I think you also have, I have to ask myself sometimes, why am I sharing this? Am I sharing this to unburden myself? Hmm maybe not the best thing. Yeah. Um, or am I sharing this for the betterment and the transparency of my team? And I think if your intention is strong and, you know, sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we step in poo again, I've done it right. Then like, that's a good check. Right. Yeah. And uh, as much as I'd like to keep doing this, because I'm pretty <laughs> sure we can, we can, we can fill in another hour if, uh, if, if, if we really, if we really wanted to, I am going to keep this as concise as possible. I want to say thank you very, very much. I very much appreciate it. And I hope everybody else who's listening enjoyed this episode of Sea Sweet and Sour. Uh, <laughs> if, you found, if you found anything uh, uh, particularly interesting that you feel uh, your colleagues may enjoy, don't be shy. Remember, sharing is caring, everyone. Be sure to stay tuned and sign up for notifications on your favorite podcast platform or on aligntoday.com slash podcast. We have some very interesting guests such as Dan Kelso, super hilarious. I, I really want people to listen to that one. Vaughn Sigmund, Kevin Nolan, and much, much more. And once again, thank you so much. I very much appreciate it. It's not, it's, it, I'm not taking it for granted that you're talking with me. You're a breath of fresh air and uh, I, I appreciate it. Thank you, Philip. And I'll say I've really enjoyed it. One thing that stands out to me is I would imagine you bring the humor quite a bit to your team. <laughs> and I like the lightheartedness humor. I, I imagine that at the Align team, there's a lot of laughter that happens. And you know what? There can never be enough laughter. So thank you. I appreciate thank you that. For, for bringing that in here as well. 
I appreciate that. I'm not crying. You're crying. Okay. Um, no, no, thank you. I appreciate that. And and I and I hope the producers that are listening, Julie and Haley, I, I, I uh, you know, they they can answer to themselves. But uh, I, I hope I actually bring that in because I, I I very much appreciate laughter and and being and being happy because there isn't enough in today's world, unfortunately. So on that note, have a great day. And uh, yeah. Thank you. 